0: Today on Blue 58, except for preseason game, training camp is all but over. So as we wait for kickoff, let's make one last prediction as to who is going to be on the Packers' 53-man roster. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of the ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Muirdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Every year it seems like training camp goes by faster and faster, no exception this year. We're done. The Packers have all but broken camp here. They wrapped up their final practice of training camp earlier today, and now we're just waiting for kickoff on preseason game number three. Jordan Love is going to be back on the field, and a bunch of other guys are going to be fighting for their NFL lives. That fight, unfortunately, is over for a couple of guys on the Packers roster already, though a couple of other guys are getting a chance to uh, show what they can do in one last preseason game. First and foremost, Devin Funches has been moved to injured reserve, ending his season, a disappointing end to his comeback tour. It looked like he had a real shot to make the roster coming out of that first preseason game, but unfortunately, that was the last that we, uh, we got to see of Devin Funches, And I kind of get the sense this is going to be the last go-round for him. You know, it's been a two-year journey, or it will be a two-year journey by the time this season comes to an end, and boy, just never, timing never worked out there for Devin Funches. Do not blame him at all for opting out last year, given when they had to make that decision and what we knew at the time. It felt like he made the best call for him and his family, and of course, he he would probably agree with that. I think he seems to have no regrets and gave it his best shot this year, and unfortunately, his body just did not agree here. Worth a shot on both sides here, and I think this is probably where it comes to an end. Same kind of goes for Chris Blair. Uh, no real injury limitations there, but it was going to be a long shot for him to make the roster anyway. Liked his physical ability. It just uh, was a, was going to be a tough uphill climb to make the roster, and it got all that much tougher with uh, Randall Cobb in town. The Packers have signed two new players heading into their final preseason game. Abdullah Anderson and Stephen Denmark, one defensive lineman, one cornerback. Let's talk about Anderson first. Six foot three, three hundred and three pounds out of Bucknell University. Go Bison. Uh, Bucknell, the uh collegiate home of Packers, great Clark Hinkle, for whom Clark Hinkle Field is named in Green Bay. Good athlete is Mr. Anderson, uh 8'45 relative athletic score. He's appeared in seven games in his NFL career, six with the Bears in 2019, where he recorded one sack. One with the Vikings in 2020. He was on the Bears roster for both Packers Bears games in 2019, but did not appear in either one of them. So, having been signed by the Bears and the Vikings and other Packers, he just needs to fill out his NFL, NFC North score sheet with one more visit to Detroit, and that should be it for him as far as the NFC North goes. Honestly, it's a long shot to make the roster at this point, but. As far as the Packers are concerned, you might as well kick the tires on some big dudes because the Packers are still pretty light on big dudes. Uh, There's not a lot of 300-pounders on the roster right now. Anderson just over 300 pounds, so not the the biggest lineman, but it never hurts to have a deep bench of guys you can call on and be familiar with uh, when you need some big guys, and uh, Anderson certainly qualifies there. Speaking of big guys, though, Stephen Denmark is a big old cornerback, six foot two, two hundred and twenty pounds. Yes, you heard that right, six two, 220, Valdosta State grad, way down south. Go Blazers! Uh, they're members of the Gulf South Conference in NCAA Division II, and Denmark was on uh, V State's NCAA Division II national championship team in 2018, playing a different position than he had played his first three years. In college, he played wide receiver his first three years there, then switched to cornerback for his final year of collegiate ball, and has played that position in the NFL so far. He has had brief stints with the Browns, the Bears, and the Steelers—not in that order. He was a Bears uh, pick first, uh, but you can see why people keep taking a chance on him. Nine-three-six relative athletic score—that score alone makes him one of the best athletes on the team right now. But if you look closer at his profile, there. You get a pretty clear picture of what he is going to be if he sticks around in Green Bay, and frankly, if he sticks around anywhere. Uh, Mr. Denmark runs a 44640-yard dash. So good, great, honestly, at that size. But terrible agility numbers. 4,27 in the short shuttle, 7.43 cone. Bad. Uh, but he is a big, thickly built guy that can run really fast in a straight line. What does that sound like to you? I think you're looking at a punt gunner there. And that's probably where the Packers are going to be looking at him. Uh, there's never a shortage of need for those guys, guys that are willing to go pell-mell down the field absolutely as fast as they can with little regard to their own body. Uh, they, you need a certain number of those guys. And uh, having a big one uh, like Denmark around is never a bad thing. So maybe keep that name in the back of your mind, if not for uh, making the initial 53 here, um, maybe further down the line. He might be somebody they circle back to. Let's dive into a roster prediction. I feel pretty good about where we've been with these predictions so far. A couple circumstances have changed since the last time, well, over the course of training camps when we've done these. But really, um, this seems like a fairly easy roster to predict. It comes down to a few questions. First, how many cornerbacks are the Packers going to keep? If they keep six, I think your six are pretty clear. But keeping more than that may depend on what they do at safety. Right now, I've got the Packers keeping six corners and five safeties. But that could easily change. If they keep six safeties, do you keep five corners? Do you go light somewhere else? So that's the first question. The second question is, how many offensive linemen do the Packers keep? I've got the Packers keeping nine right now. But if they go heavier at another position, they might try to see if they can get by with eight, especially if they're going to have David Bakhtiari back sooner rather than later. Aaron Rodgers sounded somewhat surprised today talking about David Bakhtiari um, potentially being unavailable for week one. Somebody brought that up to him and kind of sounded like it was news to him. So you never know. Again, another thing to keep in your back in the back of your mind there. But I'm operating under the assumption that Bakhtiari is not going to be ready for week one. That doesn't seem like that big of a stretch. But even beyond that, I've got them keeping nine. Then how many quarterbacks do they keep? I kind of laid out my case briefly last time about why I think the Packers should only keep two corner or two quarterbacks. Should keep way more than two cornerbacks, but quarterbacks. I'm not all that hung up on the potential of losing Kurt Bankard. I mean, it, it's great to have a lot of quarterbacks around that you like, but if you're looking for a seventh corner, or a tenth offensive lineman. Bankert would be my first cut. Just to dive right in here, I've got the Packers keeping three quarterbacks because I think that's just what they're going to do. If this was what they should do, I wouldn't have Bankert on the roster. But if we're predicting what I think the Packers will do, I think Bankert is going to stick around. So three quarterbacks, no surprise here. Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, Kurt Bankert. Sounds good to you. Sounds good to me. If you want to push back and say Bankert shouldn't make it at all, I would agree with you. I just tend to think the Packers are going to keep three. At running back, I think there's a case to be made for keeping four. I think the Packers have enough bodies around where they could get away with that and it wouldn't look crazy. Patrick Taylor looks still like a good physical prospect. Dexter Williams has looked better in this camp than I think any in so f- we've seen from him so far. But ultimately, I think it's going to be three guys here. It's going to be Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon for sure. And then Kylan Hill has the third spot locked up. At receiver, moving Devin Funchess to injured reserve cleaned up a lot of that picture. And Jawan Winfrey having been injured for basically the last two weeks makes it even more clear. Because beyond that, the competition for that sixth wide receiver spot comes down to Malik Taylor and Equinemius St. Brown. Taylor has been healthy and available, and making plays in the first two preseason games, equinemia St. Brown has not. So that leaves us with Devontae Adams, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb, and Amari Rogers, as well as Taylor. Six wide receivers. I don't think there's any chance that they're going to keep seven anymore. We should talk a little bit about wide receivers a little bit more in depth, though. Got a couple takes here. First and foremost, it is really good to hear what Aaron Rodgers is saying about Marquez Valdez-Scantling. MVS has been a developmental project for most of his career to date. And there have been times when he's looked really, really good. And there have been times that he looks really, really bad. If you ask Aaron Rodgers, though, it sounds like MVS is looking really, really good. And it has way more to do with what he's doing off the field than what he's doing on the field,
1: you know, I don't even want to talk about the receiver. I want to talk about the person. Uh, the person is uh, in a way different headspace. You know, I think uh, I think he is so settled uh, mentally, um, very clear, very present. Um, you know, there's habits that go along with that. I think, and I think they're interchangeable, personal, professional. But he's become a true professional. There were times a couple of years ago where we didn't know if we could count on him because he was inconsistent in his practice habits. Um, and his daily habits almost, but that's not the Marquez that I know now.
0: Consistency has always been an issue for Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Now that he appears to be at least getting them cleaned up in practice, we do have to wait and see if he can get it done in games, but if he's got a vote of confidence like that from Aaron Rodgers, things are pointed in the right direction. Rodgers in general seems pretty high in the receiving core that he's got too, and again, it comes down to as much as uh, as much who they are as people, as the players themselves.
1: When you look at those four receivers that we have at the top of the depth chart, pretty special. You got the best guy in the league. You got three incredible role players, uh, and that's said with the utmost amount of respect. Um, guys who, all three of them, as I answered earlier, very settled, stable guys, mentally off the field and that allows them to be very focused uh, competitors on the field. I think Allen and Marquez and Randall have had really good camps. They each bring a lot of different things to the table, but those guys have been a big part of uh, us kind of gelling on offense. I feel like offensively, you know, perimeter-wise, we've had a really nice camp.
0: Characterizing MVS, Allen Lazard, and Randall Cobb as elite role players kind of sounds like a backhanded compliment, but I actually think it's an incredible compliment. Everybody knows that role players are important. Think about yourself in the job that you have. Do you think that you are, if you take an honest look at yourself, do you think you're a superstar where everything is circling around you and what you can do? Or are you more of a role player? Personally, in just about every job that I've had, I've been a lot more of a role player than I've been a superstar. But that can be a really rewarding thing. Being the solid right-hand man that your coworkers can count on no matter what, even if you're not the star of the show, is a really valuable thing in just about every line of work. To say nothing of how valuable it can be in team sports, and obviously it's pretty valuable to the Packers. It's pretty valuable to Aaron Rodgers because now he's got four receivers on top of Robert Tunyon, on top of Mercedes Lewis, on top of Aaron Jones, on top of Josiah Deguara that he can count on. And that's super, super valuable. The thing that bothers me a little bit about the Packers wide receiver core kind of has to do with the time it's taken to get here. So MVS was a late pick in 2018, a sixth-round pick. Alan Lazard, an undrafted free agent not long after that, I think late 2018 season, actually. Randall Cobb obviously acquired this year. Amari Rodgers acquired this year as well. And Devontae Adams has been around for a long time. This has been a long developing receiving core, and it's really good now. But why did it take so long to get here? I think if you still want to argue that Brian Gutekunst should have put more resources into the receiver position before now, you might have a case. Wide receiver is a body-heavy position. It's one of only a few on the entire roster where I've got more than five players making it. It's the only skill position where you need that many guys. You don't need five or six quarterbacks. You don't need five or six running backs. You rarely are going to need more than three tight ends, although I've got four on the roster here. You need a lot of bodies. And I think in general, NFL teams should be investing more resources into their receivers and not less. Spend whatever it takes to get the guys that you like. And look, the Packers spent a little bit this year to add to this receiving core. Without a third-round pick, without trading for Randall Cobb, it would be Adams, MVS, and Lazard, and then some combination of Malik Taylor, Equinemius St. Brown, and Joan Winfrey, and who knows what else. That's a, still a pretty shallow group beyond additions this year. To say nothing of what the receiving core could look like at this point next year, investment gives you some backfill. We've talked about that in previous seasons a little bit, too. The different kinds of draft picks the true needs, the priority backfills, the flyers. Receivers should always be a position where you're backfilling, and the Packers haven't had a lot of depth there and wouldn't have a lot of depth there this year if not for a trade in a 3rd round pick um, that they could have had had they been backfilling it a little bit more. This is maybe looking at the trees as opposed to the forest, But I think there's still a legitimate criticism of the approach here. Just because they got a good outcome with a bad process, or maybe a questionable process, we should say that, doesn't mean that the process was commendable. That's probably a discussion for a different day, though, especially after we see what the Packers ultimately do with the receivers they've got this year and who they are able to retain heading into next year as well. At tight end, no real surprises here. Uh, Daniel Crawford has... uh, been released. Isaac Nautas on injured reserve. Jay Sternberger is going to be suspended to start the the year. So what does that leave us with? Robert Tanyan, Mercedes Lewis, Josiah Deguara, and Dominique Daphne. Bronson Kalfusi, a great story, but I don't think he's got the juice to make this roster right now. Would be a lot of fun to have another 6-7 tight end out there, though, especially one wearing number 45. Offensive line. This one gets a little bit complicated. This one gets a little bit uncertain for me. Right now, I've got uh, Elton Jenkins, John Runyon Jr., Josh Myers, Royce Newman, and Billy Turner as your top five. The guards could get switched around a little bit, but that's my top five. Beyond that, Lucas Patrick and Ben Braden. I don't think any, any mysteries or surprises here as well. Beyond that, though, I've got Yash Nyman and Cole Van Lannon. And you'll notice that means free agent signing Dennis Kelly is not there. I just don't know if you can count on Kelly right now considering he's been injured basically in, in camp so far. I don't know if I'd want to go in to the season with potentially one of my top two tackle backups being hurt. Nyman seems to have come on strong down the stretch here. He looked much better in preseason game number two than he did in game number one. Got to remember some of these guys are playing in their first game in almost two years as well. Talking about Jordan Love being in that boat, Nyman didn't play any preseason games last year, and he didn't get any meaningful reps in in the season last year. Maybe the speed's a little bit much for him right out of the gate there in preseason game number one. But I think Nyman makes it, and I think Van Lannan makes it just because he's got guard tackle flexibility, and he's been healthy. I could see the Packers keeping 10. Maybe they roll the dice on keeping Kelly around just until David Bakhtiari comes back. But if Bakhtiari is back and ready for Week 1, that complicates this a little bit too. Right now, I'm still operating under the assumption that Bakhtiari is not going to be there in Week 1. And the Packers will have to roll with some of their guys instead. Watch the offensive line, line, though. Five defensive linemen on my roster right now. Kenny Clark, Dean, Lowry, Kingsley, Kiki are your top three. No surprises there. Beyond that, TJ Slayton is going to make it. And I have Jack Heflin making it over Tyler Lancaster at this point. We've got to remember there are some practice squad spots up for grabs there as well. Uh, it's possible a guy like Lancaster could make his way back on the practice squad, uh, though Willington Prevalon certainly a consideration there as well. I think Heflin has done enough, though, uh, and he's another big body, big active body up front that could add a little bit to uh, what the Packers do there, uh, giving them a little bit more depth on the defensive line. On the edge, Zedaria Smith, Rashawn Gary, no big surprises there. I'm not going to overthink it with Smith's injury. I'm just going to assume he's going to be healthy for week one. I don't think they would risk putting him on the pup list uh, because he'd be out for six weeks at least. Uh, Maybe they sneak him through to the 53 and then put him on injured reserve right away and move some other pieces around there. But um, if they do that, you might see a name like uh, Carlo Kemp or uh, Chauncey Rivers at the bottom of the chart here. I don't think that's the case right now. Zedarius, Smith and Rashawn Gary are your top two guys. Preston Smith, your top guy after that. I think Jonathan Garvin for a little special teams continuity. And then Tipa Naliyai is your fifth edge rusher there, uh, kind of taking over the Randy Ramsey role on special teams as well. Don't forget about Kemp or Rivers making a run uh, if that ends up being a question with Smith's availability. But uh, right now, I think it's those five. At inside linebacker, Oren Burks is going to make it, joining Devondre Campbell and Chris Barnes, as well as Ty Summers, I think Isaiah McDuffie, they try to get through to the practice squad. At corner, I've got six right now without Isaac Yadam. Jair Alexander, Eric Stokes, Kevin King are your top three. Chandon Sullivan, your fourth guy, that order doesn't really matter because Sullivan's going to be playing in the slot. Shamar John Charles, your fifth corner, and then KB on Ento uh, playing special teams and doing KB on Ento things beyond that. At safety, Adrian Amos, Darnell Savage, Vernon Scott, Henry Black, and Christian Uphoff. Innis Gaines, the um, the odd man out there. Again, depending on what the Packers want to do, they may keep uh, him in addition to Uphoff and Black and Scott or uh, switch things around and, and Keep more corners and only go with five safeties, and both Uphoff and Gaines end up on the outside looking in. Um, a lot of people seem to like Innes Gaines. Watched his presser the other day; it's easy to see why he's a likable guy. He plays hard on the field too. I think I like Uphoff's traits a little bit more, uh, so that's where I skew there. Personal bias, maybe sure, uh, but I, I go for the traitsy guys over or the non-traitsy guys, and Uphoff is big and athletic, so keep them around. Specialists, no surprises, J.K. Scott, Mason Crosby, and Hunter Bradley. There's my 53-man roster prediction. We'll probably have it up in print on Monday. But there you go. Tear it apart. Tell me what you think. Where'd I go right? Where'd I go wrong? Uh, We will find out Tuesday afternoon. Season is right around the corner. And of course, we do have the, uh, of course, looming possibility that uh, injuries may play a role here too, but let's try to think a little bit more positively than that. Blood, Sweat and Chalk chapter 19 talks about spread stoppers. Overall impression of this chapter. Got to say the 335, the 425 as schemes are not all that interesting, but I think looking at the 335 in particular as a symbol of what defense is about is interesting. Gary Patterson quote I think on the second to the last page of this chapter really jumped out to me. He said, let's say an offense runs 60 plays, which is about average for a game. You're going to need a better call than them on about 30 of those plays. It takes a lot of work. A lot of preparation and every offense is different. Texas Tech plays the spread. Air Force runs the uh, runs the uh, triple option. Later on in the chapter, he says, quote, all you're trying to do is get the offense back to the huddle, not kicking off. That really is defense in a nutshell. It's about slowing them down. It's not about pitching shutouts, winning 3 nothing, or anything like that. You're just trying to win about half of the plays. And that does take a lot of work. It does take a lot of preparation because everything that you're doing is reactive. You have to react to what the offense is doing. It's a lot harder to take the game to them. A couple chapters back, we talked about the, the 46 defense. Last chapter, we talked about the zone blitz. Those are all examples of, of attacking the offense, the 335 is is less that, it's more reactive, and how the 335 came about is also an interesting example of of being reactive. So this all starts uh, with Jolie Dunn's 533 defense, which is just laughable here in 2021. Just imagine going out there with five down linemen, three linebackers, and three defensive backs. You're going to go out there and stop Aaron Rodgers with five down linemen and three linebackers, eight guys in the box, eight big bodies in the box, and you've got Aaron Rodgers and his four premium receivers out there that he likes a lot. Good luck. You're going to try to slow down Marquez Valdez-Scantling with three defensive backs? Have a good time with that. I think it's interesting, though, that he developed the 3-3-5 while at New Mexico State, learning from BYU's wacky passing offense because his time at New Mexico State coincided with Mike Holmgren's time at BYU. No wonder they were thrown around a bunch. I think it's also interesting in this chapter that size and speed on defense come down as much to resources as preference. So If you think about recruiting in college football as an economy, which it kind of is, because there are limited commodities available just of players, there's only so many of them out there that you can sign and and bring to your team, think about supply and demand. You can very quickly see how offensive and defensive shifts, offensive and defensive schemes, trends in the entire sport can be driven just by what's available. So say a lot of offenses sign a lot of big guys. That means fewer big guys for the defense to sign. So the defense can't big, get as big. So what does the defense do? It tries to counter big offenses by getting fast. Well, then the offense says, well, these defenses are so fast, we got to get fast. So offenses get faster to counter. That takes away offensive players from the defensive side of the ball. The defense can't get as fast. So defenses decide, well, Since we can't be as fast, I guess we might as well get really big and we can beat up on the offense. And around and around and around it goes. This chapter also contained perhaps the best explanation, I think, of leverage that we've seen in the book so far. So Cody Alexander in our interview with him mentioned the concept of leverage and levers on defense and things like that. You give good explanation of it. This provides, I think, a little bit more insight into that. So leverage is pretty simple. Don't let yourself basically get outflanked no matter where you are on the field. If you're in deep coverage, don't let anybody get deeper than you. This is where they talk about speed receivers taking the top off the defense. You lose leverage. If you're wide as a defender, don't let people get wider than you. If it's your job to stay wide, don't let them get wider than you. Think about how we talk about defensive linemen, edge rushers, linebackers uh, setting the edge. That's leverage. If you're on the inside of the defense, don't let people get inside of you. Don't get kicked out. Don't get displaced to the outside if you're supposed to be going inside. All of those leverage principles come into play in reacting to the offense. And this chapter really got into the defense's job of reacting to the offense very well. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you checking us out. Appreciate you downloading. I appreciate you sharing this with a friend. That's the number one way this show grows. Uh, sharing it with people who you think would enjoy it. So if there's someone in your life that you think would enjoy this podcast and more Packers talk, do it be a big favor and share it with them. It's going to help more people find the show, and it's going to get more people involved in this conversation we're having around the Green Bay Packers, which ultimately is a very, very good thing because it helps all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.